Hello, Film Failure fans. This is Jason Parker. I am here with a, I would actually say, a film success story um, on the first job that I got paid in the industry on, uh, a great little short film called Welcome to Level 7. This is writer-director Matt Wilson. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Oh, so it's such a pleasure. Um, I've really, uh, I'm excited for people hopefully to be able to uh, rediscover this short film. Um, and I'm super excited to be able to talk to you about it today and uh, everything that went into it and then the other plans that you have uh, with it. Uh, Matt, where did you grow up? I, I grew up mostly in Northern California. Um, I, I live in San Diego now, which is where I was born. But when I was a kid, I moved up to Northern California and I lived uh, in Yosemite National Park for a couple of years. And then, um, and then for quite a few years in and around that area in an area called Mariposa County um, and the town of Mariposa. And it's just a little tiny one horse town, didn't even have a stoplight um, when, when I lived there. And uh, I think there was, it was a population of 15,000 people. So it was very rural and uh, there was nothing to do, no movie theaters, comic book stores or anything. We just, uh, you had to make your own fun, so. Mariposa now is is Merced where you get off the train to go towards Mariposa? Yeah, well, Merced Merced was the closest uh, the closest civilization to Mariposa. Yeah, it was okay. it was the nearest town. So if you needed to go someplace that had a mall, um, then or a movie theater, right? Then uh, Merced was where we went. I've I've stayed the night in Mariposa actually on my on my way into Yosemite. It was a nice little nice little town. I went to the Burger King there. That was the big thing to do. Go to the Burger King at uh, Mariposa. Wow. Well, that Burger King wasn't there when I lived there. So, but yeah, Mariposa was the the gateway to Yosemite. So if you're going to go to uh, Yosemite Valley, <clears throat> at least if you're coming from I think was it the south or the west, you you would go through the town of Mariposa and then through El Portal and then you'd end up at the the gateway right there to go into the valley. So I actually, yeah. I have two friends actually from Mariposa. Um, they're a little, I think a little younger than us. No kidding. We can talk off, uh, off mic and I can see if you, if you know them and stuff. We'll have um, to, because I don't think I've ever met anybody from there. <laughs> well, that's, that's really funny. Um, so I guess, as you said, it was sort of, it was sort of boring growing up there. A lot of, uh, running around the woods, I take it. And That's pretty much, yeah. All we did was, uh, you know, on the weekends went out and just hiked. Um, there's a lot of fences, a lot of no trespassing signs. And of course those were always an invitation to see what was on the other side. And often it was, uh, a little bit surprising, you know, you'd run into people that were living out in the woods, just trying to like stay off the grid. And, uh, and that was, that was a pretty wild thing back then. I, I grew up in a small town in Alaska and uh, same thing. Um, you know, that was all, that was all we did just walk around the woods and stuff. And you'd, you'd, you'd find some people, yeah. <laughs> um, some very interesting people and stuff. And we, we'd make up stories. Like when I first moved to this town, um, the kids that I first kids I became friends with, they claim that there used to be a pack of wild dogs and all of their, their dads got together and went and killed the pack of wild dogs. Um, and I actually really believed it for a few years till I saw the film, the pack from the, uh, I think late seventies, early eighties and, <laughs> and realized they were, they were just making up stuff, but it was an exciting that there was, there was also, there was a, an area where there were a bunch of um, like, animal skulls they look like maybe like foxes and i don't know if it was just a spot where hunters had, had done a bunch of stuff but 
same thing us kids would make up stories about you know satanic things and you know like this is the 80s you know the mid mid to late 80s so it was all it was all believable that there were these cults you know doing stuff and yeah well i mean in where i where i lived uh the cults were real (laughs) i remember while i was living there that the fbi came in and they busted a huge ring of ku klux klan members um that had been uh kind of terrorizing people around there so it was um it was pretty crazy that stuff was all over the place well that's that's wild um what art inspired you growing up matt oh boy anything everything um you know i back then right growing up in in the 70s and 80s you know, we only had a few channels on the television. So, of course, I was I was glued to the afternoon cartoons every day. Um, I was, uh, uh, you know, Saturday morning were spent watching cartoons as long as they were on. So I was always into animation. Um, you know, I also growing up in that area, our, our television came out of uh, the Bay Area. And and there was a channel. It was Channel 2 back then. And it was broadcast out of uh, San Francisco or Oakland, I think. And I, I remember this is a, a pretty formative thing for me. Um, in the early afternoon, I think from like one to three, there was a program on called Dialing for Dollars. And this was and it was hosted by a guy named I don't know, Pat McCormick. OK, and Pat McCormick would have this show. And in between uh, the commercial breaks or when they would cut to a commercial break, he had a, a grid on the board. Uh, I'm not behind him. It kind of looked like a bingo board and he would um, he would call out numbers or something like that. And you would the viewers would send him postcards and they and then he'd pick a winner during the show and you'd win like, uh, you know, a gift certificate to a steakhouse or something like that. Um, and and he'd, he'd do this. He'd host this show for a couple hours. And then at three o'clock, uh, the cartoons would come on, you know, watch Scooby-Doo or Flintstones or whatever was on. And then at five o'clock, um, there was another show that came on called Captain Cosmic. Captain Cosmic was also hosted by Pat McCormick, except he wore, <laughs> he wore a helmet. He had a silver suit on and like a red cape, if I'm remembering all this right. And, um, and he had uh, uh, a helmet that covered the top of his face, so he couldn't recognize him, but I knew it was him. <laughs> and the programming on that show mostly was uh imported from japan so it was star blazers um the space giants uh what else other you know lots of those those like 80s and 70s uh japanese cereals and those blew my mind and so i was always always eating that up as as much as i could and then i remember there was uh, he would do some advertising for things and one day he advertised a book called how to draw monsters and it was by oh, yeah. how to draw monsters yeah. by larry and i i'm spacing his last name i should have uh looked it up uh, but i didn't know i'd be talking about this so, um uh but it was it was just a little like you know probably 32 page black and white book um by this artist and i think i was five or six years old and i'd always liked to draw and color and i was into crafty things and i said, mom, I've got to have that book. And so she ordered it for me. And that, I think that was really kind of like the spark where I was like, I love drawing monsters and fictional things and, you know, science fiction. And of course there was Star Wars, right? At the same time. 
Um, and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, cause I was, I was right there when it came out, uh, I was five years old in 1977. So that was a huge, huge spark for me. But, um, but yeah, I think that was it. And then there's a footnote though, that I, that I got to bring it back to Pat McCormick because at midnight creature features would come on and that's when they'd show like the old universal movies, Frankenstein and creature from the black lagoon. And, uh, that was also hosted by Pat McCormick. So wherever he is now, he had a huge impact on my life because I spent so much time watching television um, and he was hosting almost everything. So is it, is it Pat McCormick or Bob Wilkins? Boy, I thought because I've got a, I've got a Bob Wilkins hosting the um, KTVU San Francisco oh, that... area. Oh, he was yeah, 71 to 84. That... He was he's sitting in a rocking chair. It probably did on the the for, for the creature feature. Very very likely. I could have my name wrong. I could. I'm. Isn't that the great thing about getting older? You you swear that something is something, and then when you when you go, oh, I was completely wrong about that. Yeah, because now I'm looking at Pat McCormick, and he was an actor, so it was probably Bob Wilkins. Bob Wilkins is yeah. that his name? Yeah, um, and it has him as Captain Cosmic from that was him. like seventy yeah. seven. I'm looking at his launched. picture now. That was him. I got my got my names transposed there. That that so that's uh, that's just a testament to how old I am. I'm glad you uh, fact checked that. <laughs> oh yeah, no worries. Um, um, yeah, that when I was growing up in Alaska, we had a, a guy named Eddie P, and he had thrill, Thriller and Chiller Theater on um, Friday nights, and I saw a lot of a lot of great stuff on that. Um, and sometimes they wouldn't edit it, so sometimes you'd get. Um, what was it? Blood Diner. I remember seeing Blood Diner in like 1990, 91. And they, they didn't even try to edit it. There were boobs on everything. Um, it was, it was pretty wild and they would always get in trouble and stuff. But I mean, you know, 10, 11 year old me was, was digging it for sure. Um, and of course, Star Wars obviously was, was the biggest thing ever. Um, and it's, uh, it's wild. I was just thinking about how, like, the Marvel Universe was able to get 22 movies done in 10 years. And we <laughs> barely got 10 movies in 40 plus 45 years. So I'm, I'm kind of disappointed. But, it, you know, it is what it is. Um, well, um, what got you into um, it? Well, if you go and explain what you're doing now, um, it's a very it's a very interesting um, business. Um, yeah. Um, by day, I own a tabletop company, a tabletop game company. Um, and uh, so we make uh, board games. We're actually really known for miniatures games. The company is called Privateer Press. Um, our our uh, flagship uh, miniatures game product is a game called War Machine. And it's a. Uh, it's a fantasy sci-fi setting where people uh, take on the roles of these characters called warcasters, which are, they lead crazy armies of knights and giant robots, or they lead giant monsters against each other. And they play out these really fantastic battles on the tabletop. Um, the miniatures are all uh, uh, their, their hobby kits. So people get to collect their armies and customize these things and make them look however they want. And then sort of like create the narrative behind these armies and why they're clashing on the tabletop. So uh, Privateer Press has been around for 21 years this year. So I've been oh, doing wow. it for quite a while. Um, and we've done a lot of different things in addition to, um, in addition to uh, War Machine. Um, we have another game that's a, a, it's a kaiju 
miniatures fighting game called Monster Apocalypse, um, and uh, which is actually um, a, a project in development at Warner Brothers right now. So, oh wow! Congratulations! Uh, yeah, so we've some, That's awesome. Some uh, done some some stuff there. Um, yeah, we make a lot of different games, and that's uh, that's where the what we've done with the the level seven uh, game as well as it was a series of board games. So, um, are there any other other than you know drawing and things like that? Were there any other arts that you dabbled in? Um, I I write and draw. Um, I've always played games, played games as a kid, and I started making games probably when I was eight or nine, um, just because I, I loved the idea of like creating these worlds and narratives and, um, and then the rules that went along with them and, you know, bringing people into that stuff. So, uh, I've tried to learn how to play just about every musical instrument that there is, and I have failed at every single one of them. (laughs) So, um, just could never, never stick with it. Um, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, otherwise, no, I've always been, you know, on the art side, um, it was either, either, uh, artwork, I mean, illustration or writing. I also was never good at music. Um, I remember they tried to introduce us to the recorder in fifth grade and I couldn't, I faked that during the uh during the big recitals at the end of the year i just put my fingers and pretended that i was doing it and <laughs> i still passed somehow so but that was it that was the last time i uh, i tried to do anything musical yeah i never never had any success there i uh, i think I, I flunked music twice and uh um, oh wow <laughs> it was it was never my thing even though i, I really wanted to but... well that's it wow Failing. I only failed geometry my sophomore year. And of course, first grade, I failed first grade, which wasn't, um, I don't know how I did that. Um, well, so it comes to talk about level seven. Um, and I'll just uh, preface this with uh, a level seven was originally a feature you wrote. Um, and then you decided basically to try to get, uh, I guess, financing to some degree to make the feature. And that's why you shot the short, which is why what I worked on. Um, where did you come up with the idea of level seven? Uh, so level seven is is sort of based in modern UFO mythology, and uh, the the I've always been fascinated with it. You know, again going back to my childhood, I grew up with In Search of and Project Blue Book, and you know these everything that anything that had to do with uh, with extraterrestrials or UFOs was absolutely fascinating to me, and I've always been fascinated with the idea that that there may have been some conspiracy or there is some conspiracy or collaboration be, between the government and, uh, and, you know, extraterrestrials. And I think I was, I was watching a program, um, probably ancient aliens or something like that. And they were talking about, um, it's a, it's a, it's very popular in the UFO folklore. Uh, it's called Dulce base. It's in Dulce, New Mexico. And, um, and the 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 myth is that there's a secret underground base where um, where the U.S. military is working alongside um, aliens, and so that uh, that was sort of just the you know the the premise, and I kind of I started digging into it, and there's you know there's so much out there when you start digging into UFO myth and um, 
and it's all over the place. But I started to grab onto these different ideas and, and try and like stitch them into something that made sense and, and also really told the entire story of, of um, aliens first arriving and the, the, uh, the relationship that they had with the government, how that impacted the technology that our country has enjoyed, um, you know, where it came from. But at the same time, I was trying to uh, create something that could be a, a fairly, you know, done on a very lean budget, um, but that was, that had action and horror elements. And so that's kind of where like level seven takes off from that, that modern UFO mythology and then turns it into this sort of action horror, like, you know, diehard meets aliens kind of thing in a underground base. And it's a, I, I love it. I just watched it again right before we, uh, we started and it's a, you know, very claustrophobic, um, just, a, just a, a scary, creepy thing. Um, how long did it take you to write the original script? And also what was your process of writing? Was there music you listened to? Um, I wrote a whole script listening once to the album Hot Fuss <laughs> by The Killers. Um, it's just over and over. I know again. that was on my playlist back then. So, um, That's uh, yeah. So the, the way it came about was I had been, um, writing scripts and doing, doing some, uh, doing a lot of writing in addition to, uh, running and growing this game company. And, um, and after a while, you know, the, the process of, of writing and pitching and selling anything takes, a long time, usually often, if, if you even, you know, make it across the finish line with that. And what I found after a few years of doing this was I had been doing, I'd written a lot of things. They weren't, you know, they weren't getting traction or, you know, I didn't know if they ever would. And then meanwhile, I've got this game company and, um, and both of those things take a lot of energy. And so I, with level seven, I came at it as, well, I know I'm going to write this script. And I'm going to put all of this like world building and development into it. Can I do something that even if it never made into a film, you know, even if nothing ever happens on the, on the film side, that there's still value from the time that I put into it. And, and so I, I came at it as, as that I'm going to write the script, but I'm also going to develop the property that I knew we could make into the games because that was something that I could green light. And, um, and so that's, that's where it came from. So the, the whole thing, it started with uh, a treatment and a, um, a lot of concept artwork. And I started to build this world. And after showing that to some people and getting some feedback, then I started in on the, the actual screenplay. And so while I'm writing the screenplay, I'm also thinking about the concepts for the games that we're going to develop uh, later for Privateer. And then, um, you know, as far as, as how it, uh, it went, I think it was, it was probably um, at the time, even though it's, it, it's a, you know, it sounds silly. It's a, an action horror, like in a underground base. I mean, that's nothing new there, but um while while I was writing it, uh, my wife was pregnant with our with our son, and that was impactful because I went into this thing just thinking about it as sort of a 
action sci-fi horror thing. And in the end, the, the screenplay really became um, a journey about fatherhood or, or really the fears of fatherhood and accepting responsibility in that because those were all the things that were kind of going through my head at the time. Like we were having this kid, we've got this company, I'm still trying to do stuff in, in show business and, um, you know, and what's going to happen in a few months when, when this kid arrives. And so a lot of that got kind of channeled into uh, the script, which I think gave it a dimension that I didn't even, that I wasn't thinking about when I first got into it. Um, that's not something you see in the short, right? Uh, the short's just a, sort of a, an excerpt really of, or a, a condensed idea of the, the film, but in the, the, yeah, it's very, it's, I, I don't want to use two dimensional as an insult, but it's very, you know, you, it's 10 minutes, 11 minutes long, you know, you get what you, you know, you get what you see, but, um, so you don't you obviously don't get to explore a lot of those themes but no no the the um, short is really just yeah, trying to establish the the look and feel and texture of what this uh this story might be about um the actual the actual uh the full screenplay is about uh this uh, a guy and his girlfriend that get abducted to this base and um they wake up in it that's the first scene very similar to the the short they wake up in the base they have no idea where they are. They see these military figures around them, but they're, they're sort of, they're unidentified. And then they get uh, separated and dragged off into different parts of the space. And the story is of the, the hero trying to find his, um, his girlfriend, who he doesn't know is actually pregnant at the time. And, mm. um, and as he eventually finds her in this space, comes, he comes to find out that he's also going to be a father. And that really kind of changes the imperative even greater at that point. So, um, so that's the, uh, the, and then the story is, is then him finding her and then having to get out. Uh, level seven is the, the lowest level of this underground base where all of the horrific things happen, um, where the, the aliens are experimenting on humans and uh, creating clones and hybrids and, and things in a, in an effort to um, engineer a cure for uh, a plague that is destroying their own race. And that's what they've been doing for 60 years in conjunction with the, hmm. with the, uh, the government, they've, they've traded their technology for, um, for basically sanctuary and resources to try and, uh, create this, this solution to their, um, to what's destroying them. Um, but of course, some of those resources are the human population of the, the country. And so that's where the abductions come in, right? The abductions are actually being carried out by these, these, uh, soldiers and they're brought in and they're handed over to, um, to this one alien who's sort of a, a mad scientist and is creating these things and these things that he's creating, these horrors that are in the, in in the base end up going rogue and there's friction between um the uh the aliens and and the soldiers and you see you do see that in the in the short where um yeah. the it's it's and, and that's supposed to raise the question is like these guys these two soldiers they they seem to be comfortable with the idea that there's monsters running around like they're accepting that that's not a mystery to them but they definitely don't like them and there's some sort of animosity going between them. There's some friction. And in, in, the, in the, the larger script, 
um, that breaks down throughout through the story. And so about midway through, the whole place is erupted into kind of a, a battle zone between these two factions. And the, the heroes are trying to get out alive in the middle of it. Shady government. Right? What's... <laughs> Nothing new there, right? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't even, I don't even really have anything to say because I wouldn't, I wouldn't no, no, it's all very believable. I think. <laughs> um, and then, so, as I said, with the writing, do you have a process? You just listen to music? Oh, um... As far as the process, I think I just, uh, you know, I would sit down and just start writing. Um, my, because I've, I split my time between, uh, you know, two different sort of creative, um, uh, pastimes right or jobs um anytime that i that i'm not working on a project i'm thinking about one of them and so usually by the time i would you know get to my desk in the evening to be able to write um i'd have a head full of ideas at that point or you know kind of know where i i'd like to go usually i sit down and i'll read i'll i'll read back like the last 10 or 12 pages that i've written or maybe from the beginning depending on where i am in the story and and then it just gets a little longer each time and uh um so but otherwise i mean i don't really have any uh rituals or anything like that i do like it quiet actually i've, I've tried living listening to music mm. um you know i i read all the books that were like you know make a playlist and you know try and try and create that sort of uh atmosphere or you know feeling that you want um your your story to take on and for me, it was, it's really like, I just want it quiet and no interruptions. So I do most of my writing usually at, you know, between like 11 and PM and three in the morning, um, because everybody else would be asleep. You know, I'm not getting phone calls or emails or anything at that time. And I can just focus, um, for, for a few hours. And that, that's funny because I, I can't have it quiet. I can't be alone. I'm one of those, the douchey guys who <laughs> sits at a coffee shop. Um, I need to have a little bit of stuff going on. But actually, the place I found is the best for me to write is actually on the bus. Um, because there's nothing to do. Um, there's no one to talk to. Um, but there's still enough things going on. Um, and it's, you know, I just have my notepad and just, you know, scribble away and... Um, I actually lost a, a screenwriting gig because I told the producer director of, that that was the way I wrote. And he just thought it was like the, the he was kind of um, he was from a culture that has sort of a, a class system. And so I think he thought when he heard bus, he thought lower class is literally, um, you know, but it is what it is. Um, he ended up not paying anybody for that gig anyway. So I'm glad I didn't I didn't get the job. Um, so what happened after you wrote it? Obviously, it was early November of 2011 that uh, that we shot. Um, and when did you finish the script? And when did it become the short? Uh, the is? script was finished well before um, we did the short. So I, I think uh, I was writing the script in 2009 um, because my or I probably no. Probably probably closer to the beginning or I probably started it in 2009, actually. And then uh, my, my child was born at the end of 2010. So most of it was probably written mm. throughout that. And I honestly don't remember how long it took. Um, it might've, you know, I might've written it over the course of a year or six months or four. I mean, it's all, it's a blur back then. Um, 
but yeah. uh, but I was I was living up in Washington uh, at the time where our uh, where the Privateer Press, the game company, is. Um, shortly after my kid was born, uh, early in 2011, is when I moved down to Los Angeles, um, and it was it was pretty quickly after I moved down that I got into the the short project, and the idea was to create the short as sort of a proof of concept for the film. Um, uh, I've got a, a, a manager they work with, Tarek Heitman, um, who was helping produce it. And, uh, and he's got a lot of, uh, great connections. And so he brought tons of people to it. Um, and it, of which you ended up being one of them. And, um, and so I guess you said we shot in November of 2000. I, I'm glad you said that cause I wouldn't have remembered the date. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, yeah so I guess that, that was probably, it was probably six or eight months of working on the, for that, you know, the short itself was pretty easy to write. It's a, uh, you know, it was kind of like extrapolating the ideas of, you know, the various action and, and things that we would see in the, um, in the screenplay and trying to find a way that it, you know, just to tell a tight narrative in a, in a short period of time. Um, and it was, uh, and then it, yeah, it came, it came together. I had the opportunity. I was living out in the Valley, um, in uh, an area called Chatsworth, which I didn't even know when I moved there, but happened to be about a mile and a half away from Amalgamated Dynamics. And I had a good friend here who, uh, who was a concept artist for them uh, from time to time. And so he made an introduction and, um, and then I took the project to them and they, they thought it was great. And so they sort of like opened up their doors to help me out. Um, and I got to go in there and, uh, and, uh, sculpt with them and work with their guys. And I, I made the, uh, the, the suits that aliens wear in the, um, in the short, I built those there with, with their help. Um, and they made the masks and it was, it was a, an amazing experience that I had no idea I was going to be getting into when I started on that whole path. But, um, but it was pretty fantastic. So, so yeah. And that all led to the, to the short, which, uh, we shot what over three days in that creepy old 40, 40 47 <laughs> and a half hours of work. That's how many, I, I still remember the first day of shooting was, was 17 hours. Yeah. And I remember I had, since it was my first, first paid shoot that I was working on, I really was gung ho. And I remember the first morning. So we show up at Linda Vista hospital, which is super haunted place. I mean, I, I don't believe in like, haunted, it, but like it, it has that scary, it has the scary feeling. I know they shot a lot of um, mm -hmm. those ghost shows there and you can walking around that place, especially we showed up at five in the morning with there's no electricity. We were the ones that set up the, you know, the generators and stuff. And it was, it was creepy, but I was wearing, um, um, I'd never worn them before, but I started wearing um, Converse. And the first day I'm running back and forth on this hard cement. Plate. Oh yeah. My feet killed <laughs> me the next three days. I've never been in as much like foot pain as I never wore Converse again. I threw that yeah. pair away after the first day. I never wore Converse. They're, they're not, day. they're not, um, uh, they're not very friendly to your feet. <laughs> Stylish, but not friendly. No, no. 
I was like, how did they, how did they wear these in basketball games? Oh, like yeah. you would see the old comic books where Dr. J's wearing Converse and stuff. And I was like, did he, <laughs> what? Like you could, barefoot would be better <laughs> exactly. than. Yeah, it was a, it was a um, creepy hospital. Uh, you know, w- when we were doing the location uh, scouting for it, we went out there and it was myself and the Tarek, my producer that I was working with. And I think uh, our DP was with us and Let's give oh, a, we yeah, can give Ruben. a shout out to and, Ruben. Uh, Ruben yeah, I, I, I think it was um, Ruben that was with us. So I know there was a third person. And we were, you know, it's this, I don't know how old the hospital was, probably close to 100 years old, right? And we went down into the boiler room and you, you went through this long hallway and, um, and it was dark. We had to use, we were using our phones as flashlights because we had no idea what we were doing, if, what we were going to need when we got there. And, the boiler room, I, I think they, they, I believe they've shot some other like big feature stuff there, horror movies. And that place is super creepy. And that was where, where we did the last, you know, the final shot um, of the whole, the whole film was right there in the boiler room. But while we're down there, we go to leave mm-hmm. and the door has been locked behind us. I don't, it, it, uh, it closed <laughs> and we didn't realize it was going to automatically lock and we're stuck down in there and there is no way out. And so we're pounding on the door and we're yelling and finally somebody else hears us. Cause there's always people walking around there for, for various things, usually scouting it. And, um, and somebody comes to the other side of the door and, uh, and they couldn't open it. They're like, we don't know how to get it open. And so finally somebody else comes around and we're down there for 20 or 30 minutes. I think at least it felt like it was a long time. And, um, somebody else finally, comes and says, you know, go to this other side. And we end up, they end up kind of guiding us towards, uh, I, I believe it was a, it was like an old chimney or an incinerator chute or something. And then we crawled out of the door and out of this incinerator <laughs> to get outside. And it was nuts. Yeah. So they've done insidious mm-hmm. two and three were there. Um, Outbreak, L.A. Confidential, End of Days, The Cell, uh, Dexter, Charm, True Blood. I, a, a few months ago, I watched something and I saw the boiler room and like and freaked out and was yelling <laughs> at my wife, I've been there, we've shot. So actually, so the, the original Linda Vista was opened in 1905, but it was replaced with the new building in 38. Wow. So, um, and it was, yeah, I remember having to go to the third floor for some reason. I think there was a, I think they wanted a new, whatever location they had, they they didn't like the room and they made us go upstairs and see like, maybe we were just looking for random props. But I remember being by myself on the third floor and just being like, just waiting, <laughs> waiting for yeah. something to pop out. And uh, it was, it was not, uh, you know, it's a wild it, was a place. Little, it was a little crazy, but you know, and I, so I was, I was art department coordinator leading up to the production. I got some random, you know, like a fan and some fog machines. And then on the set, I was doing art department and a little props. And you were, you were, we've already discussed this, but you knew everything you wanted. Um, you, you kept your cool the whole time. Um, really, just really impressive watching you work as a, as a, as a creator, um, as someone too, who, who wants to, you know, do all aspects and create everything. It was, it was nice to see. And it was, 
it's something you, you had a passion for it. Obviously it was your money. So of course you, you would, but you don't see that a lot on a lot of the shoots, at least the stuff I did. Um, that was probably the funnest thing I ever worked on. I did a lot of commercials and music videos after that, and they just don't have the same. It's, you know, uh, there's something about being in a horror film. (laughs) It was, there was always, you're always surrounded by that texture right or whatever was going on and we're creating these scenes and we're fogging it up and lighting it and it's like it's it there's something magical about being on set with with something like that right where and you're you're bringing it to life and creating it yeah yeah it was um what um and of course um we we talked a little bit about the aliens you uh, yep. tom woodruff jr was involved and of course tom woodruff jr was the i believe the actor inside of the original yeah he's been in, he's been in a lot of stuff um, he's an amazing actor um you know he's he's and, been in a lot of the different uh practical suits that they've made the alien suits um and then alec gillis he also was uh part of it and both of those guys are just two of the greatest guys they've ever met they're so talented and um and really encouraging and i i I wouldn't have been able to do it without them and their generosity helping me out so yeah yeah it was um everything was cool i um i really really enjoyed it and i it was i was always bummed that every (laughs) job wasn't wasn't like that um but yeah um so what was what was post like i know there's a lot of visual effects in the last uh, minute of it um and a few other random visual effects throughout um the actual the final visual effects um is very very impressive it looks great and it's very uh, it adds quite a bit to the to the, to the film yeah from kind of minimalistic to to you know real yeah we had some some nice sci-fi um so uh, post was, uh, let's see, I think I did a, a, a rough cut and then um, we had another editor that came on and he did some work and then I ended up doing the, the final edit on it um, and, and did a, a fair amount of the, um, the post work coordination and everything. And then we had a great uh, colorist that came in and helped um and a really fantastic sound guy michael ferdy who was just wonderful with the sound um uh and uh and then eventually we we brought on board a company called entropy and they're uh at the time they were they were a big commercial special effects place in spain and again they were somebody that was um there was a represented with the the manager producer I was working with and um and they came in and they did all of our all of our digital special effects for you know practically nothing um and they did such an amazing job they took those like static masks right because the 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 uh prosthetics that the actors were wearing were you know they, they didn't have any articulation other than just they could stretch if they moved their their jaw around but otherwise the um they were all static and uh and they animated those so there's shots where the aliens eyes are blinking and um and there's little facial expressions going on and they put all of that in afterward they put in um uh, atmospheric particle effects and and things uh muzzle flashes in the with the the guns um and then the the sort of final shot that you get which is the big tank farm at in in the you know at the the level seven the namesake of the 
the piece. And, and that was a really like amazing, elaborate, uh, effect, you know, that they built all in 3d. We composited the, um, shots of the actors that we took there in the boiler room at the end, they were in there. And, um, and it was, it was amazing. I had no idea we were going to get to that, that point as we did this, but, um, but it was fantastic to work with them. And, and they like, I think they, that's the cherry on top of everything, right. Is, is being, able, you know, it, the whole film is this tight claustrophobic run through the tunnels. Right. And then, uh, and then to open up on that at the, at the end. Right. And so it's such a big reveal for, for a little I, film. The first the first time I saw the short, I was like, wait a minute, where was that room at? Why did, how did I miss that? Yeah. Like it was, um, it just looks great. Um, there's actually a, a funny thing I remember was, um, I believe what yeah, the main actor, yeah, Christian, Oliver, Christian, right. Was that a Christian? He was great because he would, we would talk a little bit between, between shoots, but he, I remember every time right before he would shoot, <laughs> he would run back and forth to get the sweat going. Like he was, and I remember it's funny. There's a lot of really negative people in the film industry. And I remember a few people commenting on that. And I was just like, shut up. I was like, this guy's you're, you're doing this over here, do what you're doing, you know? And like, he's, there's yeah. a reason he's in front of the camera and you're not, you know, and you're putting, you're shoving Doritos <laughs> no, he, in your mouth. Right he was now. amazing. I mean, he, oh, and he, yeah. um, we even, we rehearsed for, uh, a, a week or two before the shoot, he'd come out and we'd be out in my garage and, and, uh, just, kind of working things out and then yeah on set you saw him i mean he he was the most energized person of anybody um and uh you know and super committed yeah and, i mean yeah and he had more energy than anybody he was you know and, running and never never afraid literally. to get his hands dirty doing something either i mean he's he's a he's an amazing guy yeah um another so well this is almost since obviously the name of this podcast is, is film failure there's one thing that I probably am, there's a few of us who, who'd noticed because we were there, but it was, and it's one of those things where just thinking ahead, but we filmed, we filmed the, it was in the, the, um, the little lab when they, uh, before Chris get Christian gets grabbed by mm -hmm. the thing. It's when the soldiers bust in. Well, I believe we filmed um, inside first and they kick the door in. And then we go to film outside <laughs> and there was that footprint. Yeah, and I noticed yeah. it again today, you know what I'm talking about, correct? And it's one of those things where it's, you know, just nobody, obviously who thinks this footprint is going to stay and not come right. off of this door when you kick it, which was, uh, but as, as someone doing art department, that was a big kind of like, it was, it was something I learned right then and there. I was like, you definitely have to be, yeah. You just have to be thinking ahead on those things, you know, and obviously that wasn't something, it wasn't a mistake you made. It was, um, it was just one of those, one of those things, but it was something <laughs> nine years later or almost, almost 10 years later, I still look at it. Yeah. Like, when oh, you're shooting out a sequence, right? Like, yeah, it's, uh, it's so important to, to watch every single one of those little details and, and, uh, you know, and that's why there's so many people there too, right? You got your scripty and your, you know, AD and everybody's, you know, job is to, to uh, be watching for those little, little things. And sometimes they get caught and then other times they don't. So. Um. Yeah. 
And I think, I mean, we obviously, I think we noticed it, but I just don't think there was anything anybody could do about it. That <laughs> right. footprint just wouldn't come off the door. Um, and the funny thing is, I think the the shot you use is them of just pushing the door with their hands. It's not even the one where they kick it open, which, is, <laughs> well, which makes it even I mean, funnier, you know? The place is old. It's probably been kicked in before, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. You know, it. It was just, you know, it's one of those things, you know, that only only a handful of people will go like, oh, that's it. Um, I had a uh, I had a short I worked on and uh, the uh, the director, it was it wasn't until the last moment that he gave me some some stuff he wanted printed out. Um, I ended up getting them printed out on vinyl. It was a uh, what was it? It was um, a cereal box cover and it was in vinyl so it wouldn't look shiny. And I didn't even look at it when I bought it. I went and got some cereal and we filmed that night and no one noticed, but the, the cereal box was O's and I got like kicks. So there's this bowl of cereal with these, like, <laughs> kicks in it next to this, this box of cereal with O's, but it was kind of, it was a dystopian future. So I figured like, eh, maybe they just, you know, they don't care what, what kind of product, but no one said anything. And the thing is, the short, the director, he won't respond to anyone's emails or anything. So I always wonder, I go, is this the reason he won't give us footage is because of my serial <laughs> You think the whole thing. Uh, you know, I mean, but, you know, it's even, even in yeah. the biggest productions, you still catch those little continuity things, right? Where somebody's, you know, drinking a beverage or something and it's, it's got, you know, more in one scene uh, Game of Thrones. You know, than it had in the scene before. <laughs> yeah, it's the, this stuff happens all the time. And it's like, eh, yeah. it's those little things that remind you, you know, you're still watching a movie. But, um, but uh, it happens, yeah. It's hard to be perfect. Um, so when, when did you find out that things weren't moving ahead as a, as a feature? Because you had at the time, I won't get in, you know, into names, but you had, you know, you had a name attached, someone who yeah. was interested in being the, you know, the main guy. And obviously we were all really excited, you know, I'm still excited. I want to see a whole series. I want to see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would, I would love seven, to um, see it happen uh, someday and it still might, you know, it's like nothing ever really dies in, in, uh, in this town. Um, yeah. it could take 10 years, you know, I mean, I watched, uh, something on, um, the, the show that everybody loved Queens Gambit, right. That was on Netflix recently. And it took that director 30 years to get that made. And it's like, I was thinking about that and yeah. how, you know, he wanted to make this thing back when that story that it was inspired by was only, you know, 12 or 15 years old at that point. Now, now it's like it's it's two generations yeah. later, and um, you know how that impacted the vision for it. I, I I can't even guess, but like that's sometimes that's what happens, right? Things they you go out with them, they start to get some traction in one place. I mean, we went everywhere with it. We took the the shore, we took the screenplay all over the place. We went to anybody who would um, give us the time of day, and I got really good at pitching. <laughs> So if I learned how to do anything from this, it was, it was that, and we got a really good response on it everywhere we went, very few passes, but then things just never would go anywhere. Or we'd start to get traction at, at one uh, production company. And then like, we'd talk to them two weeks later and all of a sudden they had changed their mandate and they're not doing science fiction anymore. They're only doing like, you know, historical, right. It, it was, it was weird. It was stuff like that all the time where, where, you know, we, 
we think that like, okay, this one is going to get some traction. We're going to be there. And then all of a sudden the, you know, the rug would get pulled out from under it and you'd be back to square one and, you know, doing rounds again. And then after doing that for like a year or so, eventually you just kind of lose momentum on it. And, it, um, and, and I was at a place where I'm like, well, you know, the, the, the opportunities to put this in front of anybody are getting fewer and further between it's it, maybe we just need to let it cool for a while. And, you know, and there was lots of other things going on with it as well. Like we were, we were getting budgets done and revising those budgets. Um, and uh, I was working on um, rewrites of the, the screenplay. One of the places that we'd taken it to um, the, the, uh, production company they said you know we like it it was funny they, they'd made amazing sci-fi i'm not going to say who they were but they've made some incredible science fiction films um very well known um but the guy that that we were talking to um that ran it he's like i don't really know anything about science fiction and so i i think it sounds cool and the script looks good but i need a second opinion and so he sent us to a marketing company to, to do a, an evaluation on the script. And, um, and so that was another like crazy process where I'm working with the, 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 the person that runs this marketing company where they do evaluations for all the studios on, on things, right. To see if they're going to chart well. And before they ever start spending money on the, the productions. And, and so that was a, a really weird process, right. To have somebody who, was completely outside, like sort of saying what, what worked and what didn't. Amazingly enough, they actually really liked it. They gave it a very good grade. He's like, changed two things about it, right? And, um, and he's, I'm like, and then you'd sign off. And he said, yeah. So we had that. And that was the one where by the time we got back to the production company, they'd been like, ah, we're out of science fiction. <laughs> so <laughs> like, well, at least, the, you know, the script got a little bit better for that. And it was it was on their dime. They paid for it. So um, so that was okay. But, but then it was like, man, you know, we, it felt like it was almost there and then it was never quite there. So, you know, um, and then, and then, so it went cold for a while and I worked on some other stuff and then I probably a few years after that, I, I don't, I've lost track of, you know, the chronology of everything, but I, I worked with another producer on it, um, to try and convert it into a, a streaming series for, um, for a new streaming service that was coming up. And again, that was, that was one where it was, uh, it was a company that was being financed uh, by a bigger company in China and the, the executives here, they thought it was great. And they're like, we really want to do this. We totally see what you want to do with it. Um, we just have to get the blessing from our owners, you know? And so we, we worked up a whole new pitch book for them and I, went through and I, I, uh, re-outlined it as a series so it could be serialized. And <clears throat> after a whole bunch, yeah, I think it was, I think it was ten, probably ten episodes. Yeah, it was, ten episodes. It, it might've been seven episodes. I think, I think we were doing an episode a level. So the whole idea was each, each episode, uh, the, uh, the heroes would, you know, make it up one more level in this facility. And, um, mm. Oh gosh. And what year, no, what year was, was probably, this again? Do you remember? I am, I'm going to say approximately five years ago, but, um, but I really am not okay. sure. But, uh, 
I, I that should make sense. I'm totally thinking. I'm like, did, did streaming? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it was. You know, we had. You know? Uh, well, you know, it, it wasn't very. Now that I think of it, it wasn't very uh, mature at that point, right? Like Netflix, we were still renting DVDs. Um, I although I as a guilty side mm-hmm. note, I finally just sent my last DVD back to Netflix a few months ago, which I've had for like eight years. <laughs> so. That's a five hundred dollar movie right there, um, but uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, That's why I haven't been able to get a racer head. Um, you've had it but, this whole time. Uh, anyway, so we had, yeah, so we we had it was it was sort of it was back when um, oh, like Crackle was coming up and um, and there were a couple other like small mm. streaming. You know, everybody was starting to smell what was what was cooking there with that stuff, but but Netflix was the only one that had really um, gotten any traction at that point. But, but at, at, at any point, the, uh, or at any rate, we, we did this and they sent the stuff off to, you know, to the, the owners in China. And of course we never heard a peep, like nothing, <laughs> not even a, not even a like, Oh no, they didn't like it, but just, you know, silence. So, um, and it's a lot of that stuff though, but that's, that's sort of the game, right? Is you just have to be okay with, uh, I, you know, I knew, I learned well before I was into that process, right? You just can't get your hopes up on anything. You put all your effort into it and you try, and then, you know, you know that you did your best to, to get this thing done. And, um, you know, and if you believe in it, you'll keep trying. Right. And it's like, if somebody called me tomorrow and said, Hey, we want to hear your pitch on level seven, I'd be right there with it. Right. I've got it. And, uh, I have had my whole routine. I used to have these maquettes yeah. of the, the alien heads that we would take into the, uh, um, into the pitches with us, which was great. I, I, I made this big, uh, foot locker that looks like a military crate and we drag it in there and we take, take, take these two alien heads out and put them on the, the table. And they're about like, <laughs> they're about half scale. Um, and they were, they actually were made at, at um, ADI as well. They were surprised me with them at the end because I didn't know they were making them. And uh, they had me come in one day and they had them. They're on amalgamated dynamics plinths, these amazing uh, sculptures. And uh, and those were like, people would look at them. You'd be staring into these big black bottomless bug eyes of the, of the, uh, the grays and the doctor. And, um, and, and there, those were kind of magic because people would just be like, I don't know. Maybe they worked against me because maybe they didn't hear anything I was saying. They were just looking at the alien heads, but <laughs> either way, it was, it was always a fun, uh, a fun little routine to, <laughs> to do when we pitched. I, I, uh, I had a film class years ago and um, this of course would only work in the early two thousands. Nowadays you'd be in jail, wow. but I pulled out a fake gun during the final pitch like a handgun and then just set it down on the, on the table where I was pitching. It was a, it was like a cop, uh, like detective thing. That's all that matters. Um, no, no, it was, uh, yeah, it was, um, it is what it is. The teacher was uh, Dr. Bruce Cook. He, uh, he eventually owned, started the film department at Woodbury up in Burbank, just a really talented guy. He taught a film business class and I just, everything I learned was, was from him that wasn't, you know, Everything below the line, I guess. 
Um, well, so what have you been up to since? Obviously still doing Privateer. Um, any other film stuff other than your, I mean, you have the other game, I guess, that's... Uh, um, yeah, that's, so we... You're working on film, uh, possibly? Lots of different things going on. Mostly what I've done since Level 7 is writing. Um, I did an animation project that I... Uh, wrote and directed and worked with a couple of fantastic animators to do just a, a short that was actually um, sort of a, a marketing piece for uh, for for the War Machine game that we do. Um, so if you uh, if you look up uh, War Machine as one word, short animation or CG animation, that'll that'll pop up on CG Bros. Um, and uh, and that was that was super fun. I hadn't done animation before that. Um, but I, I love, love working with it. Um, I've done some other, I, uh, right before the pandemic, I, uh, sold a script, um, that's, uh, that will, is in semi-development right now. They're looking for financing on it. Uh, we've got an amazing director attached for it. Um, and it'll be a, great. an animated feature at some point. Um, and in that process managed to, to get my WGA credit. So I'm, I'm, uh, a real, real boy now, which is cool. Yeah. That's cool. Um, awesome. So That's yeah, great. I mean, I've, I've, just, I've always just kind of stuck at it and kept um, trying to do whatever I could whenever I could. Um, it's, it's always a balancing act, you know, especially with you got the kid and a business and, you know, trying to do the, um, the film stuff wherever I can. So I'm, I, I don't get to do as much of it as I used to, but that's really why mostly what I do is writing because that's always something I can work into, uh, you know, whatever time I have. So if I'm on an airplane or, you know, just have two hours at home, then I can, I can always get something done. Oh, that's great. Well, Matt, thank you very much for sharing your time with, uh, with me and the, the uh, listeners today. Um, I'm uh, super excited about seeing uh, one of your projects up on the big screen or I'm streaming in Could my be. house on Netflix at some point. Hey, thank you very um, much, Jason. And yeah, Pleasure. best of luck to you and thank you very much.